You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of the Driving Law Podcast. And today, joining us from across the... Which ocean is it? The Atlantic. <laughs> across the Atlantic, or I guess the Pacific, if you take a really roundabout route, is Paul Doroshenko. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good. Um, I, you sound like you're on a tin can phone, so I apologize to our listeners. I don't know why you would apologize. I'm still on the show. Well, I take pride in the quality of the content that we produce. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, it's your show. (laughs) I I suppose you can be concerned about that. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's legitimate to be concerned about that. Anyway, um, even though you are uh, far away, you've been keeping apprised of all of the driving law news that's been going on in British Columbia. Monitoring everything. Monitoring everything. So I guess the first thing we should talk about is the big old national news story that's really not news. And that's that there have been very few cannabis-impaired driving charges across Canada. And in British Columbia, there have been none. Yeah, I mean, I can't... I'm surprised that it's news because it's already been discussed so many times. You had... You had uh... Mike Farnworth on the show. Well, yeah. And he said that they were not going to be, uh, you know, pushing to charge people with cannabis impaired driving, that they were looking at administrative sanctions. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the way that we do things in BC. We did the BC decriminalization of impaired driving, and that doesn't just apply to alcohol. Um, And so we have uh, officers that are trained and could go through the whole investigation and take the time and take the resources, or they could just hand out administrative sanctions roadside and leave it at that. I wonder how many years we're going to go on where every six months they they decide that it's going to be a news story that there's been a very few people charged with cannabis impaired driving, yeah. something that we predicted all along, something that we said was the boogeyman, <laughs> something that we've criticized the government for the delay to legalization over. Um, you know, how long is this going to be a, a story? It, it was always was a non-story. It was a non-story before legalization. They looked at all the different jurisdictions where legalization had already happened. Oregon was the perfect example. Legalization happened, no significant spike in impaired by cannabis. Well, I think the other factor that goes into it is the different way that we in British Columbia deal with prosecutions. Really, the way that the rest of Canada should go to, if anybody who has any power over that from the rest of Canada is listening. Are you supporting the IRPization, the administrativeization? No, I'm supporting the charge approval standard of substantial likelihood of prosecution. Okay. Like, our Crown Council have to take into consideration when there is a charge that's being laid, all of the possible available defenses and arguments um, that may be raised, the charter violations, and potential constitutional challenges that are going to be brought to the legislation. So if you're taking this ridiculously heavy-handed approach to, you know, the the 
THC blood drug concentration rules and you're charging everybody who has two and a half nanograms of THC in their system, you have to stop and think, well, at one point you're going to charge some medical user who's got a serious medical condition and they're going to raise the defense that they're a medical user of cannabis and this is infringing on their ability to take their medicine. And you're going to look at the science that says, well, there's no correlation between THC concentration in your blood and impairment and you're going to go, this is likely going to lead to a successful constitutional challenge because this law appears to be completely arbitrary. So we can't approve a charge related to this because it would it would be worse for the justice system than not approving it. So now you're saying that the Crown shouldn't approve charges because it might lead to their legislation being struck down? The Crown that can't be an charge approval standard. The it's charge approval standard that we have in BC is a smart charge approval standard. Substantial likelihood of conviction. You don't have a substantial likelihood of conviction if the law itself is going to be struck down. And the Crown approves the charges in BC, but still, I mean, okay, so the law could be struck down. I think you have to operate. I don't think that can be something that they take into account when they're considering a substantive likelihood of successful prosecution is whether or not the law is going to be struck down. If the law is going to be struck down, then it should be struck down. But I think from their perspective, they have to be, you know, vigorously defending the law and they should be applying the law appropriately. I don't think that's, I mean, I, I guess we're off topic. The original topic is I don't think we're that topic. it's a non-story that they're, this few people are charged in BC and it's... I don't, I don't know. I wanted to go that, here with this and, and ask about where the charge approval standard in your perspective played a role and I, I take it you think it doesn't play a role at all. Well, well, the hilarious thing is we've got all of these officers who are running around trained now in the rest of the country to look for this and it's like they're, they're, they've got their glasses on and they're going to be basically charging people at a very low standard, one would think, uh, when they're applying their standard because... In other provinces, the police lay the charges, which is mm -hmm. foolhardy in my view. Um, but uh, in any event, the uh, yes, the charge approval standard comes into play in BC. But in BC now, of course, we have this administrative scheme to deal with uh, with the potential impaired by uh, drug drivers. But even up until the point that they were using that, I mean, I'll let you in on the secret. I think you know it too. Most police officers have told me they're not going to investigate anybody for impaired by cannabis unless there's like a bodily harm accident or a, a serious uh, or a death or something like that. So, you know, that's part of the issue. Whereas in Edmonton, apparently, you know, they're driving around pulling everybody over and uh, SFSTing and DREing as many people as they can. I almost wonder if, if police in BC are just more sensible about enforcing the law. And I don't, like, I, I can't articulate specifically what gives me that sense. Like, I can't say, oh, you know, it's um, it's because the police in BC uh, talk to us. And we tell They're more them. secure in their yeah. jobs. Yeah. They, oh, yeah, they, they are because they got the IRP scheme to keep them going. Um, you know, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but there's just something about, like, BC RCMP and the BC Provincial Police Forces, you, the majority of the officers you talk to, they're like, yeah... I don't, I don't think that this is a good law, and I think that I can recognize an impaired driver when I see one, and just because you've had a little weed doesn't necessarily mean you're impaired, but I'll know if you're impaired. Well, we don't have the us-against-them thing that they have in a lot of other yeah. provinces um, yeah. between the prosecution and the defense, which I assume that, you know, the prosecution, uh, them 
view is uh, it includes the police. Yeah. So I think that could be part of the but issue. Even we don't have the us against them view between defense lawyers and the police here. Like, uh, and I think that part of that is because we don't have crown prosecutors dealing with traffic tickets like they do in Alberta. So we get to, police officers get to interact with defense lawyers. But, and they but get to you know, we're I, not all that bad. But you and I have noticed a change, right? There's been a significant change in the last 10 years since we started doing a lot more uh, traffic tickets and dealing with police officers. We've noticed that police officers have come around and it's not just... It's only 10 years in November, okay? Let me let, let me get there. You know, no, but I mean, you know, when Kevin Filco and I decided to create the BC Driving Lawyers and started doing more traffic tickets, we started going to traffic court and the police officers were um, very cagey and sort of angry was typical. And now, you know, we see them there and they, we talk to them about all sorts of things. And it's a much more um, fruitful, useful exercise because they understand our role and we understand their role better and they see that we're not out to obstruct the, you know, the, the functioning of their role. We're just there to try and make sure things are, are functioning properly and better for them and, and doing our best for our client. So it's, I think there's been a big change. I don't, you know, but I, I have to say, I still get the sense that you're right, that it's a better relationship yeah. in BC even before then. Or maybe it's just us. Like maybe it is just us. <laughs> every other, every other defense lawyer listening to this is like, "What are you people talking about? Yeah. We could be the wrong ones." Actually, I'm, for just, a change. I'm just thinking of one one lawyer right now, sharp dressed lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> who's I a know. friend of Kevin. I know who you're yeah. thinking of. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, not to name names, um, but. You make a good point about administrative prosecutions, and I think that uh, segues nicely into our next topic, which is, holy crap, have they changed administrative proceedings for people who have alcohol or drug-impaired driving charges or investigations? And we knew this was coming. We knew as of July 15th, they were going to be overhauling um, the forms. You got a chance to look. Uh, an officer showed you the new form um, before it came into effect. We also saw a couple of them because some officers were very smartly submitting them before the law came into effect for some reason. You're being cynical. You're being ironic. Yes. 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 I'm being sarcastic. Sarcastic. Yeah, you, you can't see my face, but you'd see my sarcastic face. Um, I guess that doesn't help anyone listening to the podcast either. No, keep that in God. mind. Yeah. God, there goes that quality standard, Kyla. <laughs> um, no, the, um, uh, so they've completely overhauled the, uh, the entire administrative driving prohibition scheme. So as we know, there's the IRPs. They start immediately, uh, 21 days to a decision, vehicle impound fines, etc. But the one thing that I always like to say in court to distinguish IRPs from ADPs and to say, you know, the public safety doesn't need to be achieved by prohibiting somebody right away because, look, they do it with the ADP scheme. It starts 21 days later and nobody died. Um... At least they can't point to anybody dying in that 21-day period. Um, they changed it. This is the biggest change. The thing that, like, blew my mind was they got rid of your 21-day grace period. So now an ADP starts immediately. Well, this brings us back to the legality of the ADP, right? The ADP mm -hmm. was originally argued um, whether or not it was constitutionally valid, and part of the 
consideration at that time was the fact that you weren't prohibited from driving while they were considering it. Now, I don't know that that changes anything, probably as a result of the IRP decisions, which is really too bad. Uh, but the, um, yeah, that's the end of the 21 days. And um, that was, uh, it's unfortunate because it's, it seems to me that it's, it's unnecessary, A, they couldn't, they can't justify it. Um, and um, it adds to the unfairness of the scheme. Yeah, and it just, it smacks of punitiveness as opposed to legitimately sorting out who needs some type of rehabilitation, including a timeout from driving, and those who who are just stand accused but presumed innocent. Well, they're not presumed, well, they're sort of semi-approved innocent in an if ADP contract. Yeah, 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 no, I know. Um, the other thing about it is that you know, the, many people in British Columbia know about the 21-day window. And with ADPs mm -hmm. that you get to drive, that this is your temporary license for 21 days, two-thirds of the lawyers will probably misadvise their clients about that. Um, and uh, probably, you know, 80% of police officers uh, will. There'll be some who are, you know, right on it and know exactly what they're talking about. But a lot of them will not or will forget when the time comes, oh, yeah. even though they've been trained about it. We're so we're going to have all spike. sorts of people driving while prohibited. Well, also, it makes no sense. And they have a great defense. Because for the drug ones, it doesn't start immediately. It starts seven days later. So you're going to have officers getting confused because the same form starts at a different time depending upon which box is checked. And what if they, you know, we see this all the time with the carbon copies of the form where the last form they checked one box and then the next form they want to check another box but it's bled through because they didn't put a piece of cardboard between the forms like, you know, any anybody with a brain would do. They, you fill out ticket books like that. You think you would know how to do it, but they don't. And so you get two boxes checked. How do you know when your prohibition starts if your copy of the form appears to have two boxes checked, even though it's a carbon copy error? The ADP section of the Motor Vehicle Act now, so it'll now be automatic immediately. What about 24-hour driving prohibitions? That's under a what's, different section. And what's the point of the 24-hour prohibition Although I, now? I'm assuming they're not going to serve them a 24-hour, but if they, but they do have serve been. them, well, there's a problem. It's ridiculous. Why do you need two prohibitions running concurrently? Well, doubly stigmatizing the people, too. Yeah, because I mean, it's... unnecessarily doubly two, stigmatizing Two them. points for your 24-hour. You know what? Maybe they should points. give them 10 different driving prohibitions at that point. Well, yeah. And uh, the, just so they can really load up the driving record. Well, you also, if you drive during the first 24 hours, then you're looking at two separate driving while prohibited charges because you were driving while prohibited under two separate prohibitions. There and you go. so the information would reflect two charges. There you go. It's crazy. Um, but the other thing that I wanted to talk it's about... It's not just crazy. I mean, it's unnecessary. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, and it's, it's going to lead to a lot of people being misled. Smacks of punitiveness. Um, and it's not, it's, when it's unnecessary like that, when they've got a fully functional scheme uh, going, it's just really, really hard to justify except somebody being, uh, you know, a government being, being jerks. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I suspect that when they did the overhaul of the ADP legislation to take out the 21 day grace period, they didn't think through that there's the contemporaneous 24 hour. Or they just assumed the police would not issue the 24-hour because it becomes moot. But I'm going to assume not the worst. 
That's very nice of you. That's out of character, I know. It is. Yeah. Um, But I also, with respect to the ADP scheme, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about something that I was thinking about. And that has to do with the new um, criminal code requirements for certificates. So you know um, now, in a criminal code prosecution for impaired driving, you are entitled to your certificate of qualified technician, which sets out all of the information about the samples and everything that was taken. And then you're also entitled to, and, and the Crown is obligated to disclose, a certificate of an analyst in relation to the gas standard. And the code says that you know you have to have samples that are taken um, uh, uh, using a gas standard to check the calibration of the instrument that has been certified by an analyst. And then 320.34 uh, sub 1 says that uh, among the things that the prosecution is obligated to disclose, a certificate of analyst related to the alcohol standard. Now, the ADP legislation used to say um, any certificate uh, of qualified t- technician, right? Or any certificate under Section 258 of the code. I can't really remember the wording, but it was specific to the actual certificate that set out the blood alcohol readings. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the certificate of the analyst was often not presented. Yes, uh, and, I, and it and caused I always, problems. I, yeah, it did cause problems. Uh, they certainly could present it, and they often had it, but uh, it was something that you could argue at any time. Yeah, no certificate of qualified technician, great. But you could never argue and be successful in having your ADP revoked that you didn't have a certificate of an analyst for the gas standard. Well, I take the new sections of the code being imported into the ADP provisions to mean that they have to have the certificate of the analyst. In fact, they are, because the new ADP provision says any certificate under the criminal code. It doesn't say any certificate of qualified technician. It doesn't say any certificate under Section 320.31. It says a copy of any certificate under the criminal code, which means you have to have both in order for the ADP to be upheld. Yeah, I've assumed that looking at the at the provisions. Uh, I don't think the police will have considered that yet, but no. we'll have to wait and see. If they're listening to the podcast, then they're going to know. I don't know how many ADPs you've got. I mean... 90, I've 90%, already argued it 90%, too. <laughs> you know, 90, well, we'll see if you succeed. Yeah. 90% of the impaired driving cases in BC are immediate roadside prohibition, so you have to wait until it comes up, and then you've got to have an officer who's listened to the podcast and then thought that I should, by gum, I should follow Kyla Lee's advice. And, and then actually submit that, follow And advice. then submit it, and then, um, and then you'll be thwarted in your argument You're next right. time. Perhaps. You're putting it all out on the air, Kyla. You're telling them what to do. Well, no, because um, I anticipate that what's going to happen is I'm going to lose that argument at the tribunal level because they're going to say, eh, you have the certificate of qualified technician and it says that the alcohol standard has been certified by an analyst and that's good enough for me. And then I'm going to have to judicially review it, which is my plan. And then it gets put out there anyway because it gets put out there in a public decision. I've been thinking lately... Um, I, I, I think, yes, you might succeed on that and, uh, that might happen that way. And you might get two or three in the next few months that you're dealing with where they haven't given you the certificate of the analyst and some little bird will whisper to the 
police to tell them to yeah. start sending it in because where's that bird it's a really yeah, chatty bird yeah, yeah it's a chatty bird that somehow from the tribunal seems to tell the police what to do um but the um we'll see whether or not you uh you get to the point of having a hearing on it before the thing is corrected maybe it'll happen to two or three people um it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out well i'm looking forward to arguing it and uh, i don't think enough police officers listen to the podcast they tell their friends. Yeah, but their friends are not... Their friends are the ones that are consistently screwing things up, from what I see. Well, that may be. From what I know of who listens I'll, to the... I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you, that, you know, there's another thing that has arisen recently that I keep thinking about, and that is that the... Uh, so for the gas standard on immediate roadside prohibitions, they publish the correct gas standards on their website as their technical materials. And they do that as a result of you. You may want to explain to the audience why, but it was something that you figured out years ago that they were, that the certificates were showing up in our office and a lot number for the gas standard, we would have multiple different certificates from different jurisdictions, different locations, and they all listed a different expiry date for when the gas was going to go bad, uh, but for the same lot. And so we knew that they were just making it up. So the government started publishing it. But now, of course, they're using wet bath standards to recalibrate devices. They're using wet bath standards that don't appear to have been um, tested by an analyst. And they're not listing any approved wet bath standards on their on the website and the technical materials. And I think they've got a big problem with that. I do too. And the thing that really gets me about it is like you make the argument and you put in the evidence that they purchased their wet baths from DavTech. You go to DavTech's website, you put in the evidence from DavTech's website um, showing which wet bath standards they sell and that the one on the, on the certificate isn't sold by DavTech, so therefore it couldn't possibly be approved. And they say, well, you don't have proof of the, of the fact that it wasn't approved. Like, where the heck am I supposed to get that? I've done the best I can do with the resources available to well, me. And well, if you go back to that series of cases that I argued related to the first issue, the court said you can't put an impossible burden on people to get evidence that is solely within the knowledge and control of the police. Which I was about to say brings us back to how that played out, because how that played out was that they were using uncertified gas. They were using gas by various different manufacturers, ILMO, remember? They were using mm -hmm. ILMO gas in some places. They were finding discount, Bob's discount. Um, <laughs> Bob's discount calibration, calibration gas. Come on down. <laughs> um, and the police were not using gas that had been certified by an analyst. And, you know, we ended up getting lots and lots and lots and lots of IRPs revoked as a result. But we had to go through all this bullshit. You know, oh, when I was God. arguing... Remember when I was like, what are they using ILMO gas for when they're supposed to be using air gas? Or they were describing it as coming from um, the gas being manufactured by intoximeters when it was never, intoximeters doesn't manufacture gas. Or, or my favorite was the air gas with a Z. Yeah, that was, That's the cool Parisian the air East, gas. Yeah, uh, Eastern European <laughs> air gas. That was the, the Russian, Belarus. <laughs> version the um, that's at bob's discount gas bob's warehouse. discount gas warehouse they found we don't have out. air gas but we have air gas yeah, so, <laughs> uh, so so in those cases ultimately we had to fight that issue out but i mean it, it should have been obvious to the tribunal and it should be obvious to the tribunal when they're using um uh wet bath that is not the wet bath that we've used in canada and they've got no support for it and they haven't sought out you know they haven't sent their little bird out 
to go and uh, get the information and then put it on the website to prove, as they do on their website, for the gas standards to prove that the wet baths are approved wet baths. And that, to me, calls into question the entire wet bath argument and uh, or, or, or their wet bath position. While we're on the topic of the little bird, um, there is another thing I don't know if you've seen because you've been away. Um, a newer, 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 because they keep changing version of the technical information on the operation and calibration of ASDs in British Columbia document. And in that document, they describe more information about the blowing into the device than is even contained in the manual. So, as you recall, the manual for the ASDs wouldn't specify the sample acceptance parameters, the, the flow rate and flow volume required to achieve an automatic sample. And this was an issue because it prevented medical professionals from commenting to say this person can't blow at this rate or achieve this volume. And it also, they didn't want it in there because it would confuse police and criminal refusal cases. Um, so now they put it on the technical information sheet. And I think the reason is because the little bird heard about all those news stories about people who couldn't blow where their medical evidence from their doctors was rejected. And they're trying to make it stronger so they can say, well, you now know that you have to achieve 1.3 liters of air at a minimum of 0.200 liters per second. And so therefore, you your doctor hasn't commented on that and whether you fall within that blowing ability. And without that evidence, you haven't met your burden because this is the case against you. I think it's actually designed to make it more difficult to succeed in a medical excuse argument even though it's being packaged as we're giving you more disclosure so you can achieve your best defense. I know you told me in some email that there was a change to that, and I looked it over and I didn't spot that change because I was looking at a different section. I thought you were speaking of a different section. There's a, there are many changes that have happened to the document in the last couple months, but this is the most recent one. Some of the police who were involved in making that document told me their biggest issue was to try and get it all onto one page. <laughs> We've got to make and it so fit on one page. Yeah, I know. So you're thinking to yourself like, okay, so they're eliminating all the evidence that might be good for your client, all of the information about the device that might be good for your client. I look through that manual and I find the manual is so biased in so many ways that it should just be rejected. And I kind of want to send it to uh, uh, independent toxicologists. Maybe I should contact Wayne Jones or somebody like that and send it to him to get him to uh, to note it up for its, uh, the biases on it. Somebody who's like credibility is unimpeachable. Uh, but the uh, same with the technical information sheet. I mean, it's just designed to, it, you know, the entire IRP scheme is designed that for everyone just to be guilty and not contemplating anybody being innocent at any time. And that's just unfortunately the attitude of sort of senior level police officers that you don't even see with, with officers who are out on the street doing this. It's the officers who, you know, are just assuming that all officers are, are, are right all the time. And uh, God, I mean, if that was if that was the case, you know, we wouldn't have all this to argue in all of these cases that we have so often. It's just so surprising how, yeah. you know, the police and it's almost like the IRP scheme has allowed the police to wear their blinders uh, and never take them off because they're never forced to be cross-examined. So all of these assumptions that they've got that that they express in in the IRP hearings that are completely <laughs> erroneous or barely barely capable of holding water with even the slightest question where they, they walk in with blinders and they're never going to take them off 
uh, they're never going to consider something else um, is just encouraged uh, as a as a consequence of you know having this technical information sheet that says you're correct and then it doesn't matter what the person says they're wrong doesn't matter what their doctor says they're wrong doesn't matter what all the medical professionals in the world say they're wrong you police officer who's had a couple hours training with your ASD and forgot most of your training already you're you're right uh, it's just it it it, it, it it reveals so much about the scheme, but it's one of those things that's almost impossible to ever express to a judge. Speaking of wrong and right, in a very clunky transition, I want to completely change the topic and talk about driver licensing exams. Because I read this crazy story yesterday about a lawsuit that ICBC has filed against an owner of a driver training school who they allege has been using bots to book driver licensing exam slots for his students within days as opposed to having them have to wait months like most people do. He was selling this as a service that you could get in quickly. Yeah. And so what he was doing was he was allegedly um, uh, uh, booking these hearings and then he would cancel them and switch them to the person's name. So he was like, had a list he of people who booked like 50 hearings using his own driver's license number. Or, or somebody's. It didn't matter. I mean, the point was, I don't know how he could use his driver's license number because how is he going to book a, uh, a driving test to get from a, a class seven to a class five or a class seven restricted to, to a class seven less restricted probably I, but, booking to go from class five to class four or three or two or one because um it's just booking a time slot it's and then once the time slot's released it's freed up for any booking okay well the point was that he he found some system and the fascinating thing i mean if you're from outside of british columbia and you're listening to this you probably don't know that over the decades we've had nothing but scandals with respect to tests we've had People who were bribed, uh, we've you know allegations of bribery. We've had allegations of, of driving test drivers in cahoots with testers, and and all sorts of people who have managed to buy their licenses in some way or another. And ICBC always tries to tighten up the system. And meanwhile, we have you know arguably the tightest system in the country because it's completely government. You know, I don't know, maybe in Manitoba and Saskatchewan they've got government insurance, but in Alberta, Ontario where they don't have government insurance, I mean, at least our, 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 it's all integrated. So you're thinking to yourself in places like Alberta, where it's all been privatized, how easy is, is it for people there to somehow fraudulently obtain a license? Oh, yeah. But here in BC, we've got ICBC that's been duped. Uh, some guys made a bunch of money. Um, and, uh, you know, ICBC's motto that they adopted a while back was building trust, driving confidence. I don't know if they use that anymore. <laughs> but they adopted that model right after it was determined that some adjusters had been buying written off cars um, but let me, secretly and let, fixing them. Let me them. ask you though, that Paul, is what he's doing technically wrong? Because he's running a, let me finish. It's he's, brilliant. It's brilliant. He's running a driver training school. People want to get their licenses as quick as possible. He's not just selling them the time slot. He's also selling them the service of using the vehicle from his school for the purposes of doing the, you know, driving test. So he's selling them an actual service, not just a space, um, that he's obtained through questionable means with ICBC. 
There appears to be no legislation in place that prohibits the use of bots to reserve slots at ICBC. We have, you know, proposed legislation to stop reseller ticket bots, but we don't have them for legislation for that for ICBC. Um, and ultimately, he's making him getting himself a competitive advantage in the marketplace of driver training schools by being able to offer the same service but at a better speed for his clients. I'm not arguing that it's lawful or unlawful. <clears throat> I mean, the, the point is that he's brilliant uh, that he managed to do this. Uh, ICBC got duped again. It's confidence in the in the system at ICBC, but which is suing the one that's, him. Which well, you yeah, don't they get may not say, they may not succeed. I mean, what are they suing him well, for? They might be a violation of his agreement that he's got with ICBC. Then I don't terminate know. Terminate his agreement. Well, well, I terminate the agreement, but it can also lead to a lawsuit. So I, I, I don't know. I, I think that the ICBC may be able to succeed in their lawsuit. I have no idea. I'm not going to speculate about their lawsuit or the lawfulness or unlawfulness of it. I, I just think that once again, it's one of those things that you wonder. You know, you, you, you sit there and think about okay. How could you scam the system? And if you're not in the <laughs> and if, get away with it. <clears throat> well, but if you're not in the position, well, I know, but people have to consider that when they're designing these systems, right? They have to think about how people can scam the system. And there's lots of, you know, think of all those people who, well, I can go get a Yukon driver's license and then I can drive in BC, even though I'm prohibited, you know, ICBC and the government long ago resolved all of those issues. Yeah. But you know, there's all these people thinking about how they can scam the system. But when you're designing the system, you're thinking about how they can scam the system. And, you know, you haven't considered every different aspect. And here, this was a way that this guy came up with. Um, and not necessarily uh, unlawful. I don't know. I mean, it's up to the court to sort that out. But um, the uh, it's all ICBC can't contemplate everything. And somebody seems to come along every few years, you know, Half the time it's advertised in Chinese in a Chinese newspaper and and they, they might be able to get away with it for years as a consequence because there's nobody who's who's reading those languages from the government who's reporting back about it. Uh, and these things, you know, they get away with it. It's, I mean, it's, and it's not always just Chinese. I mean, it could be happening in other language newspapers or circumstances like that too. It, could, it just could be because it's found out because it's in Chinese and maybe somebody is reporting back. Um the uh, you could probably if you're a Chinese uh, reading uh, RCMP officer go through all of the different publications out there and see if you can spot what's unlawful. Well, ICBC used their own little private ICBC mm. police force to investigate this and had a private ICBC police force. Um, I mean, it's not a police force, but they have their investigators. They had one of those special posts. investigators. Yeah, they have peace. Do they have peace officer status? I think they're peace officer status. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, they had one pose as like a potential customer and book a slot and then cancel last minute and then get another slot within two days to like prove that this guy was doing something nefarious, which is a hilariously large amount of resources. Those guys are very highly paid. For what? For like, so that this guy's students didn't get sooner licensing exam dates? For confidence in the justice system, Kyla, and confidence in the... And building trust, driving confidence. They're trying to build trust and drive confidence. I, I understand it. I understand why they would put the investigative effort into it. I guess the point is that, like, the Internet has changed 
um, the ability of law enforcement in so many ways, and, and, and the global travel of people has changed it in so many ways, and the creativity of people has changed it in so many ways, and the way banking and money has moved around has changed it in so many ways, and it's, it's impossible now. I mean, think of all the internet frauds that you read about all the time that the police are just basically thwarted in. Um, and uh, it's impossible now. Uh, the, hey, the, that guy was a man. real Kenyan prince. The uh, the Victoria police, uh, I noticed, were talking about the fact that they can only you know allocate money here and there, and it sounds like whining, like you didn't give us enough money, you know, give us some more money. But really, like it, 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 there, there's a point. Sorry, that's the my. my you sounded like this sounded impression like, you do of a friend of ours. my impression of the Victoria Police. You didn't give us enough money. Either. The uh, That's what the Victoria Police... I, 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 you guys are great in Victoria there, by the way. Uh, but the point is that, like, you, you, between all of the different offenses and things that people can do wrong and all of the obligations that they've got under the Charter, which have made it more difficult for the police with respect to disclosure and timelines and things like that, uh, you know, it, it is, uh, there's lots of things that people can get away with that they just wouldn't otherwise be able to get away with. And we can't, as taxpayers, are we going to spend, you know, 90% of our tax money uh, trying to enforce the law? Well, then let's talk about two people who probably aren't going to get away with something for which the law needs to be enforced. And that brings us to the ridiculous driver of the week. I feel like there should be a sound effect here or something, but um, I'm not that sophisticated. Uh, the ridiculous driver of the week, and we you need know a where ridiculous I'm going. driver of the week music or something. It's the ridiculous driver of the week. It's the ridiculous driver of the week. If it's fun and a story you seek, come for the ridiculous driver of the week. Okay, um, this week, and I'm sure you saw the video that was making the rounds on social media of the two um, muscle cars, sports cars, I don't know how you classify a Dodge Viper, um, but the Viper and the other car uh, taking off uh, at high rates of speed from an intersection, um, all caught on dash cam when the Viper... Uh, either intentionally or due to a lack of control, uh, rams into the other car, uh, causing both to uh, spin out. I don't know where you're saying this is intentional. I saw it, of course, on my phone without my glasses, uh, and it looked like two cars racing away from an intersection. It looked like a full-on attempt to race on the street, having some fun with your expensive uh, high-performance cars, and one driver losing control, probably because of a shift where there was too much power, spun the wheels and smashes into the other car. And that's what happens on the, on the track. No. But not on the was, street. This was, I looked at it I and I saw it was, a there's deliberate. There's no intentional. There's not, no, people don't smash into each other's cars like that intentionally. Uh, you see police officers doing that in police chase videos all the time. It's called in, the pit maneuver. He it, hit him exactly. He didn't do a pit maneuver. Are you kidding? He smashed into the guy's, the side of the guy's car. I'm calling into question your uh, your observational skills there, Kyla, because that was I that was just was... clearly somebody, you know, using their vehicle for a purpose that there weren't. We in Precision British Columbia say you're not allowed to do immobilization technique. No way. 
Are you kidding? No way. Either so, way. I mean, the, but the question, there's a, there's another question that arises here. Like, we've got this social standard in British Columbia where, you know, basically you can accelerate only at uh, zero to to 100 kilometers an hour in, in 11 seconds. Otherwise, you're, you're you know, doing you're not doing it right. And uh, you can't have two vehicles side by side where you try and get ahead of the other guy in order to make the right hand turn because you're street racing. So you've got to let him go first and then go slower to get into the left hand lane or, you know, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it does feel a little bit of socially oppressive, um, but maybe, you know, that, that is just the way that we are in BC. Maybe it's like that in the rest of the world. Um, you know, I don't know. People are not supposed to be using their cars on the street for racing. But of course, we sell these cars, but we got and we make the taxes from it, and we make all sorts of money from it. And we repealed street racing from the criminal code. Well, yeah. Which makes no freaking sense. Well, yeah. I oh, mean, why is but that it not also, a it also, it, But it's also ridiculous. Like, okay, I'm in the right-hand lane. I'm lawfully entitled to be in the right-hand lane. The vehicle beside me is a vehicle that's been driving slowly with a, a, a Chrysler with a signal light on for the last 16 blocks with a elderly man wearing a hat and I get in the right-hand lane and I'm going to go past him. I've got a, like a half a block or more before I've got to get out of that lane. I'm going to go Ooh, past him. Speeding uh, you up know, to pass someone in the right lane. That's the provincial definition no, of street racing. No, that's not on a highway. They, if you're in a two lane roadway on the street, if I'm driving down uh fourth or something like that, and there's a bus uh, ahead of me and I want to get ahead of the, the elderly man with the hat on and the Chrysler with the signal light on. If you go and 40 I, over. Well, no, I don't have to go 40 over. I just have to pull ahead. It's just beyond him. I'm going to race him. Okay, I'm going to get point? ahead of him. I'm, am I committing an offense? Well, you know, I, it's a it's a street race. I'm conducting a street race right there. So I could see That's why that I could said. be. Well, I know. I could see why that would be. It's the definition in the provincial legislation in British Columbia includes speeding up to pass or overtake another vehicle. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. Because it's something everybody does all the time. But, barring the fact that this was an but obvious... I'm, I'm, I'm getting much closer to being the guy with the signal light on. I know. I was thinking about you being the guy with the signal light on as you're telling that story. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Right. Um, I wanted to talk about what potential charges these people might face. So very briefly run through the list. We got dangerous driving, possibly. Possibly. Drive without reasonable consideration. Well, he's not. If you're, if you're running into the other guy, I think you're not showing reasonable consideration to him. And if you're driving in a manner that's going to throw your car out of control, I think you're, that's a pretty good argument. Unsafe start. The start wasn't that unsafe. It was the... Yeah, okay. You unsafe lost start. control within half sure. a block. Yeah, okay. Unsafe. Yeah, okay. By your read of it. Um, and excessive speed. What, they didn't get up to 40 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. No, but didn't they? speed relative to conditions, yeah. speeding. Yeah, for one c And you can totally charge a 1C and a 1B. But the conditions were fine. Yeah, I, I think unsafe start is probably in driving without uh, reasonable consideration for others on the road. That's probably the one it should be. Yeah, okay. Speeding. Simple speed. We don't know if they got up over the speed limit. Well, I'm sure somebody can calculate the distance over time. I doubt they got up over the speed limit of that. It didn't look like it to me. And I've taken the speed estimation training. <laughs> yeah. And I was watching oh, on a tiny video sorry. on my phone. I was going to say, 
when when you did your speed estimation trading, uh, Mr. Doroshenko, did you do it on a tiny video on your phone through a, a LTE internet connection, or were you doing it in real time on the street? And what was the speed limit on the street? <laughs> I also wasn't standing behind the vehicles. I was yeah. watching vehicles coming at me when I did my speed estimation training. And I was standing on a street that was a 50 kilometer an hour speed limit. So I don't know what the speed limit was on that location. I also didn't see any high performance cars speeding when I did my speed estimation training. Mm, I seem to recall you driving a high performance car during the speed estimation training. I didn't speed. <laughs> that wasn't my estimate. I thought you were going 100. <laughs> there it goes to show you, your speed estimation training is not reliable. Um, anyway, okay, uh, that brings us to the end of the podcast. So tune in uh, next week for another exciting episode of the Driving Law podcast, uh, where maybe we'll get around to talking about the red light cameras because we didn't make it to that this week. And if you need to reach us at Acumen Law, give us a call 604-685-8889 or find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. Yeah.